Good morning to all of you. It's good to be together on this chilly day and uh, to open up God's holy word to see what he might have for us. And uh, this is always one of those days that's exciting for me because we're beginning a new series and a new series brings with it much anticipation and um, hope for the word to be able to be applied in the lives of our members and even myself. And so um, we're going to begin a series in the life of Joseph, calling it The Gospel According to Joseph. And uh, we will see various trials and uh, difficulties, but his trust in God and his triumph uh, that we see. And obviously God is moving in a mysterious way. God is sovereign, orchestrating all of these events And it's a series, in a sense, of unfortunate events. As the story kicks off here, you'll see many things that if you didn't know the end of the story, you say, what is God doing (laughs) allowing this type of stuff? But I think that we all are familiar enough with the story that we do know something of the end. But nevertheless, we want to take um, several weeks to go through this and to apply it in our lives. I've prayed earnestly uh, as to what, and Pastor Steve and I actually, uh, as to what the next series would be. Um, We've kicked around a few different ideas, and the Lord made it clear that this would be what we uh, should, what I should be preaching. And so, and that's not only because of the trials of the life of of some of the the members of this church, even the trials of my own life, uh, have we seen those intensified? The Lord has made it clear that this is where we should land. Joseph was a great man. Joseph was not a sinless man, as some of the commentators almost paint him out to be. Now, um, but he was a great man, and his life spanned the social spectrum of the ancient world, born to be the future heir of a wealthy Jewish patriarch, as we know. But he fell into slavery. He sent to a far-off Gentile country. Later, he rises to this position of prominence in a place of leadership, second in command. He was loved by some. He was hated vehemently by others, as we'll see. He was favored. He was abused. He was tempted, and yet he trusted, and he was exalted and obeyed. Joseph kept his eyes on God throughout his pilgrimage, and we have many years of his life captured for us. Trials did not harden Joseph's heart. They softened him. They they enabled him to keep his eyes upon his God. Prosperity, which he knew much of, did not ruin him as it does many um, men when they experience prosperity on various levels. Amazingly, there's more about the content of the life of Joseph than there even is about Abraham. It's about 20% more material, words-wise, that we have compared to Abraham. And Abraham is referred to so many times in the New Testament, right? I mean, we are sons of Abraham, spiritual children of Abraham, right? If you're a believer in Christ. And, and then yet there's very little that's actually referred to in, in the New Testament in regards to Joseph. In fact, there's only four occurrences. We read one of them, and you were listening, I trust, is Our brother read Acts chapter 7, the account there. That's certainly the longest reference. Uh, There's a very brief mention in John 4, Hebrews 11, and then in Revelation 7 of all places. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. 
Now, there's several things that stand out from these 14 chapters contained in the book of Genesis. And the first is obviously this. God is sovereign, and as our brother prayed, he is in control. No matter what goes on around us, what storms happen, that we have a God that we can bank all of our trust in, that he is in control. But also, he's able to come alongside those who are suffering and and, and experiencing difficulties and sicknesses and to come alongside to strengthen them and to equip them to be able to weather the storms of life. And so, brothers and sisters, I think that as we come and we submit ourselves to God's infallible word as members of Grace Bible Church, that he will work this within us in such a way that we will be edified, we will be built up, our faith will be increased in who God is and and, in his control. I am convinced that, that the more we navigate the trials that come our ways, and they will come, you're never ultimately delivered from trials, there will always be new trials that come, that we will be able to uh, navigate those in a better way. But also, maybe there's some here who fall into the, the other brothers that, that are given to hatred, or there are a deep-seated bitterness against someone that, that just can't really be rooted out. Let's learn how that those things can be removed. And furthermore, we all need to learn afresh what biblical forgiveness looks like. It's not, I, I apologize, right? But we see a beautiful picture, actually several pictures of what biblical forgiveness looks like when it is sought, when it is granted, and the restoration that takes place. And so I've entitled this message, as we just really will look at the first few verses of chapter 37, Hope for Dysfunctional Families. Hope for Dysfunctional Families. Now it's no secret there are many types of Christ in the life of Joseph. Ironically, we're never told by Jesus or Paul or any of the other apostles that look at how Joseph was a type of Christ, and yet there are so many. I'll mention a few today. And it's just unmistakable. One old German commentator says it's a type of the pathway of Christ from lowliness lowliness to exaltation, from slavery to to liberty, from suffering to glory. Blaise Pascal Uh, speaks of Christ being prefigured, and he says this, Innocent, beloved of his father, sent by his father to see his brothers, sold for 20 pieces of silver, he's referring to Joseph, through this he he becomes their Lord, their Savior, a, a Savior of strangers, and a Savior of the world. None of this world have happened But none of this would have happened except for the plot to destroy him, to kill him, to sell him, and their rejection of him. He continues, in prison, Joseph was innocent between two criminals on the cross, and then Jesus on the cross between two thieves. He prophesies, Joseph, the salvation of the one and the death of the other, which we'll see in the coming weeks, when all appearances they are alike. So too, Christ saves the elect and damns the reprobate for the same crime. Joseph only prophesies, Jesus acts. And furthermore, Joseph asks the man, when when you are saved, will you remember me in prison? Which he doesn't, right? But the man next to Jesus asks, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So let's read the text. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11 as as the substance of our text today. 
Genesis 37, find your place please, and we'll unpack this. Reading from the New American Standard, Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan, and these are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when he was 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic or a robe. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were standing where we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaves rose up and stood erect. And behold, your sheaves were gathered around and bowing down to mine. Then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to rule over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you and to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, how we come to you asking for your special help and your special assistance as we would unpack this section of scripture. We thank you for your word that it can be trusted in totality. And we pray that you would plant it deeply within our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. Just a couple things about the book of Genesis. It is the first of many. It's the first of 66 books. We, we are somewhat familiar with it. It's the first of the five books of Moses. In a sense, it's the foundation of the entire Bible. In the beginning, what? God. It's a book about God and his workings, right? The creation account, which we have in those opening chapters, and really chapters 1 to 11 have come under attack in recent years. Uh, that it's mere poetry and a mixture of, of various things, but we would submit that that's a literal account. In Genesis, God is revealed as the creator God, the covenant God, the almighty God, the, 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 the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, that we get the first hint of the Holy Trinity. Let us make man in our image. We see man as God's prized possession, all of the animals and all of the creation. And yet on the sixth day is the pinnacle of, of God's creation. He creates man in his image. And as you know, woman came from the side of man. But this man was given a probationary period in the garden and he fell. 
He plunged the human race into sin. And so now we are all sons and daughters of Adam. We are born as sinners in need of a Savior, in need of deliverance from Him. It's in chapter 3, verse 15, you have the first promise and hope of the gospel, the one that would come to deliver us that's there. And furthermore, you have the doctrine, the grand doctrine of justification by faith alone. You see that in the 15th chapter of the Bible. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Faith in God and God justifies the sinner. Justification is something that happens outside of us in the court of heaven. It's his work in us. And we see that. So early. And of course, circumcision comes, what, a couple chapters later? Some say, oh, well, Abraham was, you know, justified because he was circumcised and he did all these things. No, 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 no. Abraham was not, it's not, it doesn't say that Abraham obeyed God or that he loved God or that he served God, but simply that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Furthermore, the priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ, we see very beautifully pictured through Melchizedek. Notice it's not through the ironic line of Aaron. It's, it's through Melchizedek and God's sovereignty over all of these events. And further, I would just even add, you're, you, you, re, you get to the end of Genesis and a faithful reading of the 52 chapters, and you see God using men that were so flawed so burdened with sin, so filled with sin and wickedness, and yet these are the chosen ones that will build the nation and, 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 and the forefathers of this, this, the people of God. It's a marvel that he would work with such misfits. And furthermore, we're misfits as well. A couple of quotes as we come to our text. This one from Ross. Just as Joseph lived in bondage in Egypt before his deliverance and supremacy over Egypt, so would the nation of Israel. Just as the suffering and bondage formed test for Joseph to see if he kept the faith and was worthy of the promise, so too the bondage of the nation was a means of discipline and preparation for its future responsibilities. Looking to the deliverance of Moses. Um, Kent Hughes says this, ultimately the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the events of everyday life. You see no supernatural miracles here. Um, God does not suspend the laws, the natural laws to make things happen. The story is, is about the hidden providence of God and how he arranges all things ultimately for his glory. And Joseph would eventually recognize that he is a chosen one. In chapter 45, we'll see in verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord to all of his household and a ruler in the land of Egypt. So Joseph eventually recognizes that, that you brothers, you may think that you sent me here, right? But it is God who has sent me here to preserve a remnant. Later in chapter 50, he would say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Many types of Christ, as I said, if you have the gleanings of Genesis by A.W. Pink, the last whole section Some of those are a little far-fetched, but Pink gives a hundred types of Christ of Joseph, so I commend that reading to you. So let's jump into the text, brethren. Verses 1 to 4 is our first point. Loved by his father, hated by his brothers. Very simple. Genesis 37 is not a story about Philadelphia. It's not a story about brotherly love. It's a story about brotherly hate and the, and the 
phallus sense, really. Brother is a key word in this chapter. It occurs 21 times, and we'll see it again and again, obviously, next week or next time when we finish chapter 37 and cover that long section uh, that was read. And brother is also a theme, has been throughout Genesis so far. You have two brothers, right, that are mentioned, Cain and Abel, right? And then you have Isaac and Ishmael. Then you have Jacob and Esau. And and these brothers, these brotherly tensions are prominent throughout. And now you have these 12 brothers. Well, notice the text says here, it just jumps in at the beginning of verse 2, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. There's such a contrast to even chapter 36, because chapter 36, you have Esau, which will be the father of the Edomites and, and all of that, and the prosperity that God in his infinite mercy chose to give him, even though, just by virtue of his birth. And there's a, there's a huge contrast uh, Esau ends up prospering under God's blessing. And then you go to chapter 37, and there's no genealogy. Genesis 36 lists the five sons of Esau, 27 chiefs, and eight kings, which would come by him. And by contrast, and now here's the account of Jacob. Very brief, and it just goes into this story. Now, that's been a, a tagline. If you're reading Genesis, here are the generations or the account of. That's, this is the 11th and the last time that it would occur. You see it way back with Noah and so forth and so on and Abraham and the rest. Um, but this is the last time that it would occur. And it's very brief. There's no genealogies that it's given here. Now, this last section of Genesis really reads like a, a mini novel, it's been called by some. You've got lying, deceit, lust, a plot that thickens, everything that you would want, uh, maybe not want, but everything that is commonly uh, included in a novel. Jacob seems to desire the right thing. Of course, we know he was the deceiver. He deceived his own father, Isaac, which we'll touch on, but he's deceived later in this very chapter. So the deceiver is actually deceived in, in a very similar way. He just seems to desire the right thing, but the reality is, is he's got these sons from four different wives, right? And he's got, he's got, you know, all these, he's got these sons and everything. He seems to desire the right thing, but his family is dysfunctional. And you see that going back, and we don't have time to read chapter 34 and 35, but if you're familiar, Reuben was really the firstborn of Jacob. He should have been the heir. And what did Reuben decide to do? lie with his father's concubine, right? And so he, in essence, disqualifies himself by that act. And that's in 3522, if you're taking notes and you want to look at that later. Chapter 34, you have another situation, what happened in Shechem. And you'll remember that the um, it says in uh, verse 1 of chapter 34, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hevite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. Well, the brothers, Simeon and Levi, the second and the third born out of the 12, decide they're going to take vengeance. And you can read the whole chapter. It'll make for spicy reading later. Um, how, yes, let's intermarry, but you have to be circumcised. And after they're circumcised and weak, it says at the end of that chapter in verse 25, now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that the two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, 
Dinah's daughters each took a sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. So they took revenge. But essentially by this act, they've disqualified themselves. And then the next seven are skipped over, and Joseph is then now the chosen one, the second to youngest one. Benjamin would be the youngest. There's an indication of this in the New Testament in regards to the woman at the well. And why don't you just turn there so you can see this. John chapter 4, should be familiar with it. Uh, The account, that is. But this verse is easily read over. Jesus coming to Galilee. He's coming on to the the woman at Samaria in verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria And he came to a city of Samaria called Shikar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. We're not going to read the rest of the account. What's important about this? Well, that Jacob, we don't have this recorded in Genesis, I couldn't find it, that Jacob gave property to Joseph as an heir. And so he becomes, as it were, the firstborn by virtue of his character and God's sovereign will. So what we have here is a domestic family story. The father's life had been radically transformed, but the family had its problems and, you know, again, this, these are our, the biblical patriarchs, and, and we see such a mess of them. Their lives were not all peaches and cream and smooth sailing and, and righteous living. In fact, satanic influences, just like back then and even today, love to rip families apart the desire to do the right thing. So the text goes on as we're introduced to Joseph. These are the records and the generations. That's some of the backstory for you that I just gave you. And it tells us that Joseph was 17 years old. And it doesn't, the text doesn't mess around. It very quickly gets to the fact that Joseph was the favored one. He loved, Israel loved Joseph more than all his other brothers. Now, you remember Jacob, as he went and he laid eyes on Rachel and he goes to to serve Laban, he says, serve me for seven years and then you can have her as a wife. And what happens at the end of the seven years? He's tricked and he's given Leah, the one that's not as attractive. And, And so Joseph serves another seven years. And it says in 29 verse 20, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Of course, Joseph is Rachel's son. But the text goes on and we learn that Rachel's barren. And it says that the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and so he opened her womb. So she's producing children. But Rachel was barren. Now Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, and she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And finally, you know the story, her womb is open. But you can almost anticipate the pride that would naturally be upon Joseph. This is my father's favorite wife, right? This is, you know, I'm, I'm this, the son of, of Rachel, There's also a a promise earlier, Uh, I know I'm giving you a lot of back verses that will hopefully help paint the story, set the stage as it were, but earlier in Genesis, God had already affirmed how Jacob 
would be the father of many nations. We saw that obviously with Abraham, but here particularly it says in chapter 35, verse 11, it says, God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. Now that term that is used, a nation and a company, is actually in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, ekklesia, which means an assembly, a a referral to what would be the spiritual church, I think. And and, and the amazing thing here is that that God's plans of forming a nation go far beyond building these those, those 75 members, which would come some chapters later, 75 members being planted as as it were in the embryo of Egypt where they could grow and multiply and they became a couple of million, goes far more than that, far more than Moses delivering the nation and, and the history of the nation, but goes all the way to the fact that we are spiritual descendants of Israel. We too are part of Israel, the renewed Israel, the redeemed Israel by the Lord Jesus Christ, which would come from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and is not just Jewish. Galatians 3 tells us this, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Earlier in verse 7, Galatians 3, therefore be sure it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So whether you know it or not, if you're a born-again Christian today, you are a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham. Well, let's walk through the text quickly here. Second part of verse 2, we see Joseph brings a bad report. He's 17 years old. He's pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. And then it says that Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now, before being sold into slavery, the story begins with this bad report and his telling of his dreams. And we have the character set before us. We have Joseph, we have the brothers, we have Jacob, and we have a plot that will begin to build. But these brothers, as I stated, they hate him. It's stated three times in our text alone. Hostility almost jumps off the page. And let us consider who the intended audience was for the book of Genesis. Obviously, even us here. But it was what? It was during the wilderness wanderings. Moses had already written it, and the people of God could read and to learn it. And it's amazing that as he's considering the audience, he's writing to a hard-hearted Israel that rebelled again and again. Joseph and his brothers are the fathers of this nation. It's amazing that God would choose such wicked men as this. So then, Genesis 37 up to 50 is about much more than the life of Joseph, but it is God's persistent covenant love to his chosen people, flawed, misfits, but his chosen covenant love, his commitment to them to bring them on to maturity to build a spiritual Israel. Well, we see in verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than all his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him, the NAS says, varied colored tunic. What is this special robe that was given, this coat, as it were, that produces such jealousy and further hostility on behalf of the brothers? Jacob gives him a present, a very colorful present, a very evident present that that everyone would know that they didn't get one. 
Um, it might be better, de- may better translated a decorated long robe. It only occurs one other time in the Hebrew uh, Bible, and that's in 2 Samuel 13, 18. She was wearing a long robe with sleeves. So it was some type of a royal garment that was decorated, and also the idea is that it was long to the ankles and long on the sleeves. Now, we'll see why that's as important. When you wore a tunic and you went out to the field to work, you wouldn't wear a long sleeve tunic and a very long tunic, right? You wouldn't wear something um, of that length. The common tunic of a, of a manual laborer would be sleeveless or with very small sleeves, and it would stop before the knees or around the knees. So the fact that he's going around in this super long uh, tunic that, that, that's there, that, that's very evident that, that he's not a manual laborer, he's not going to be laboring to the same level that they are, and it's multicolored and decorated like a royal robe. So the, what's the response? The brothers hated him more. Now, a word to parents. Parental favoritism never goes well. <laughs> oh, I love Johnny more than all the other brothers or sisters. I love Evelyn. She's my firstborn daughter on <laughs> this floor. Yeah, it never goes well. And, and Jacob, of all people, should have known this, right? Because his, his, Rebecca and Isaac were guilty of the very same thing, and both of them individually. Um, and so he should have known better. His parents were guilty of this. So we can just picture just from what we've seen here. We can picture the scene. It's early in the morning. Maybe there's roosters crowing, but however they got up then. But they're coming together to get the morning meal before going out to work. And they're all gathered around. Must have been a rather large table or whatever, a couple of tables. And here comes Joseph in the room wearing this coat, this very colorful coat of a royal garment, and they're going out to pasture and, and to tend to the flocks. And you, you can just see that, that and, and it actually says in the text here, in verse, at the end of verse 4, they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. So here he comes, good morning brothers, isn't it a great day? And they could not even say good morning back, or literally in the text, shalom, peace. They could not even say it. There was such hostility and hatred that they could not even respond with a common greeting. And so they hated him. They were probably already thinking, this guy's got to go. we got to look for an opportunity to get rid of him. And of course, we, we heard of that read for us. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says this, they stood for treachery, murder, and incest. Joseph stood for truth. So as long as he was present, his virtue exposed their vice. And in the end, they determined to rid themselves of him. Now, Stephen's commentary, I call it a commentary because it's really the martyr Stephen in Acts 7. It's a whole history of the Old Testament in a sense. And he gives a good amount of portion to Joseph. We read all of it. But simply put, it begins in verse 9. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and made him a governor. So, quick application. We see the same in Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior, of whom Joseph was a type. Jesus, too, 
was loved in a very special way by his father. Jesus also stood for truth and confronted error and and hostility of the Pharisees and the Sadducees so many times. Jesus was the heir of the vast domains of the father as well. But in spite of Jesus' tender words and his compassionate spirit, his genuine, pure, agape love for sinners, his beautiful seasoned speech, he was hated by his own. He was hated by the Jews. He was hated by the religious rulers. They treated him harshly and delivered him over to death as well. Now, it is true, as we go through this account, we won't see big, glaring deficiencies in uh, the life of Joseph when we get to 39 and Potiphar's wife. Um, you know, had he wanted to engage in this, he, he probably could have. But so we don't see any glaring deficiencies. But some commentators go so far as to say he's such a type of Christ that he was almost sinless. I just want to submit to you that all men are fallen. All men are, have deceitful hearts. The Bible is very clear. And so though there's nothing glaringly reported, we know that indeed he was a sinner. And even in the text here, there could be some things that could be with ill motives. It's speculation, really. Uh, for example, he's a 17-year-old that's sent out with his uh, brothers pastoring flocks. Now, so shepherds, we know of David, we know of Moses. Moses was 40 years And God was preparing him for the work that he had. David was an extended amount of time as well, preparing him. But Joseph, he seems like a very abbreviated time, and he comes and brings back a bad report. The word in the original can mean slander, gossip. It's actually translated in those ways, actually a rumor. Um, He could be immature. He's one of the young, Benjamin's the only one younger than him. And it appears as though he's tattling. He comes and he brings this bad report. Oh, yeah, I'm running home and I'm telling dad. And, you know, it could be construed as that. He was the favored one. He was spoiled to some degree. We already know about the coat that's recorded. And then how he handled his dreams. It's one thing to give the one dream. But then, from all appearances, very close behind it, maybe the next day, the second dream comes. Now, again, that's speculation. But we also know that this report could have been because he saw something that was unrighteous. And Joseph stood for righteousness. And so he wanted to run to tell his father that these men are not acting righteous as you would have them to be. And so perhaps he was revealing various things. He wanted to protect not only his father's name, but also the very character of God. Now, though there's no blatant recorded sin, we know that he was abused and mistreated, and he does not become bitter. We see him later in this chapter thrown into a pit. We'll see him in the weeks to come, um, elevated to a palace. And also, again, the the contrast is striking. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Contrast, sorry, the similarity with the life of Christ. Christ was brought so low. Some of you know this passage very well. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 6. Joseph was kept through the days of all of this human hatred and at last exalted to the second highest position. Jesus is betrayed, tried, and crucified, and yet elevated to the right hand of God. Beginning in verse 6. 
who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven, those who are on the earth, those who are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you know, if you're here today and you're outside of Christ, you're not a Christian, You will someday confess that indeed He is Lord. You will bow before Him in that day if you do not do so in this life. But what an amazing similarity. Humbled to the point of death. Joseph thrown into a pit, left for dead, and yet elevated so highly. And of course, Christ elevated where no one will ever be elevated to the right hand of God. Well, very quickly, verses 5 and 8, let's consider um, this dream. God reveals to Joseph through dreams his future greatness. We have to ask ourselves, why did God reveal this this early? He's 17 years old. I mean, he could have waited a, a little while, and yet God reveals it to him. You know, um, we might think, well, that's not too wise. I mean, 17-year-olds can, you know, can be naive and, and all of these things. But it says in verse 5, then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said, please listen to the dream which I have had. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheath rose up and stood erect, and behold, yours were gathered around and bowed down to mine. And his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more. God wanted to show him in advance what in the realm of God's grace he would become. It was to show him also that this would come with weakness and suffering, which obviously his life would experience. Now it's interesting too, as we're going through this, you'll notice that the dreams come in pairs. It's not long after this dream that the next dream comes with Joseph. We'll see that in regards in chapter 41 and 42 as well. We'll address those uh, when we get there. But Genesis 37, these dreams, it follows right after this, this privileged royal garment, right, that is given to Joseph, and then these dreams fit under that elevated position that is figurative for us, or illustrative for us in the, in the tunic, or the robe, as it were. How would God accomplish his purpose in a most unusual way? By the hatred of his brothers, the hatred of, of, of his own flesh and blood, they intended to kill him. And so too with Christ, he came to his own and his own received him not. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So too, Joseph was despised. He's hated. There's such hostility. There's such hatred coming off the page. Well, verses 9 to 11, we see the second dream and also the idea that the true meaning of these dreams are concealed for a considerable amount of time. Look at verse 9 with me. He still, he had another dream and related it to his brothers. 
Lo, I've had another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and his brothers. His father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous, but his father kept the saying in mind. The second dream obviously involves the parents now. And we know that that would be come to fruition. That would be true. Um, And his father recognized it very quickly, didn't he? Because he rebukes him. What kind of dream is this? You're saying that, oh, I'm going to, you know, bow down and and, and my, my wise before you. He's upset at that. And of course, the brothers hate him more. They become even more jealous of him. Now, you know, whether this was wise or unwise should, you know, there's on the one hand, Joseph is like, okay, I've, I've had this dream. I, I, I just want to share it. I want to get your in, input about what this might mean. Or was it maybe not the best move to give that at this time because they already hated him so much? But notice what it says. The brothers be, were jealous of him or they envied him. But notice what it says, the end of verse 11. But his father kept the saying in mind. In other words, the the brothers want to dismiss the dream. They hate him. They want to get rid of him. But his father says, I'm going to shelf that on my memory and keep that in my mind. You'll remember in Luke chapter 2 of Mary, the Virgin Mary, after the angel comes and and everything, and and it says that she pondered these things. It's the same idea. Uh, In fact, I think the Septuagint uses the exact same word. And so that's an amazing thing. Jacob keeps these things. Mary treasures these things in her heart and she ponders them. So the true interpretation of Joseph's dream is withheld from Jacob and his sons for many, many years. And we know the word says it's a glory, uh, the glory of God to conceal a matter. Well, what a striking story. I was reminded of the hymn. I didn't have time to Pick it, maybe in a couple weeks we can sing this, but God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And we will see this throughout the life of Joseph. A couple points of application as we wrap up. Um, we have seen that there is hope for dysfunctional families. This family is as dysfunctional as, dysfunctional as they come, especially in light of chapter 34 and 35, as you learn more about the brothers and their folly and their wretched sin. But this family, we will see, will be restored in a glorious way, a God-honoring way. And and we'll see that as we go through. What about your relationships? Do they need help? On various levels, that coworker that just kind of eats at you? Every time you see him, you're willing to go the long way or take a different elevator so you don't have to be in the elevator with this man? Um, Maybe it's an uncle, a cousin. Maybe it is a sibling. Some of you children, do you feel this way about your brother or sister? Ask yourself these things. 
And furthermore, brothers and sisters, are maybe you're here today and you're perplexed about why God has you where he has you in your life. Why has God brought these difficulties and trials? Why am I in the midst of one even right now? What is your purpose, O oh God? Maybe you don't understand the things that are providentially going on in your life. And, and, and you know what? You can, you can be tempted like Naomi in the book of Ruth to become bitter. She became so bitter by the end of chapter 1. We need to pray and ask God for wisdom. James 1.5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives liberally to all who ask without reproach. But let him ask in faith without doubting. We say, Lord, why am I like this? He will show you that certain areas that you may need to repent of certain sins, patterns in your life that need to be broken and reveal these things to you and give you by the strength of the Holy Spirit and the power of his word and the truth of his word, convicting those areas to bring about lasting change. Are you suffering? Suffer with him. So, because God is sovereign, right? Suffer with him. Are you hated by some? It says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That was the beatitude we studied Thursday night as we ended our study. And I want to make a qualification. One application is not, N-O-T, this. I hope God gives me some dreams to show me about what my future will be and who I will marry. And so, Lord, would you please give me a dream? Give me a dream like Joseph, you know, reveal, tell me the future. What you're saying is, our Father who art in the crystal ball, tell me what, no, 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 God doesn't work like that, Okay. God, this was, these are supernatural of the dreams or a supernatural revelation before the finalization of the word of God. The canon is closed. God does not speak through visions and dreams anymore. He speaks through this word and he speaks through the public means of grace, through the preaching and the heralding of the word of God as well. Again, I want to ask you, are you among the spiritual Israel? Are you a son of Abraham? Are you a child of God? Are you of the faith? The faith in what? Faith in Jesus Christ who came and died for me so that the Holy Spirit in time and space would come and effectually draw me, even against our will sometimes, to draw us, to regenerate us, to give us new life in Christ, to take out the heart of stone, give us a heart of flesh, that we may then bow down and worship Him. He alone is worthy and then he just doesn't save us to leave us on our own, but he further sanctifies us and prepares us for glory. We've just had a few weeks of studying the theme of heaven when we will be with him face to face. And I hope you long for that day. But if you are not a child of God, you need to be born again. You need to repent of your sin. You need to fly to Christ. You need to run to Him. The answer is not to go light candles and have religious observances and all of that to try to earn some deity's favor. That is not the answer. That will damn you into hell. The answer is to simply come. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Jesus, when He was on the cross, paying for our sins, said, it is finished. There's nothing more that you can do to add to your salvation. 
You come trusting in His work and in His merit and no merit of your own. Look to Christ. He was the perfect sacrifice for sinners, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You must look to Him, but you must repent of your sins and come in faith and cling to Him. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word and Your incredible sovereignty that's already been displayed just in this the opening verses of this section of Scripture, we do pray your special blessing upon these expositions, Lord. May you work in our hearts by your Spirit in ways that we cannot even predict fully now. But Lord, we know that you are altogether powerful, and Lord, we trust that this will be for our good and for your glory. Thank you even for this time that we could be gathered together. In Jesus' name, amen.